Spring means football, practice for Virginia Tech and UVA, and the FCS playoffs for JMU and VMI. We'll talk about that, preview the NFL draft, and much, much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 48 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here as always, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you? Good morning, Mike. I'm well and hope you're the same. I am, and I understand that you are now fully vaccinated. Um, I will be going for the same tomorrow. Uh, How did the shots go for you? They went surprisingly well. Uh, it was you know, a little nervous about dose two because you've heard all the horror stories and such. But other than, and this is random, I got home and I guess within 10 minutes, I started having cold symptoms. Just my, my nose was running. I had a runny <laughs> nose. And that, that, that was it. Well, I think that's a reasonable trade to make to be uh, vaccinated and able to be one step closer to normal life. Oh, 100%. I'll take that every time. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I, I had the, the bad reaction from my first shot. Um, and I think it was because I, I had had the virus previously. Um, but the night after my first vaccine, I had the chills and the fever and the fatigue. Uh, but by the next day, I was back to normal. And and like you're saying, you know, it's whatever it takes. <laughs> I just want to get through this and uh, looking forward to joining the club you're a member of now tomorrow when I get my second shot. Awesome. You'll you'll do fine second go around. I have faith. That's what I'm hoping for, knock on wood. Now, speaking of uh, exclusive clubs to be in, Malik Willis, uh, Liberty's quarterback, won the, the Dudley Award, given uh, in part by org- our organization as uh, – to the top college football player in the Commonwealth uh, at the Division One level for the Dudley Award, David. First off, I'll tell you it was an interesting ballot. I voted first for Khalil Herbert from Virginia Tech. I had Malik second, but uh, certainly no objection to the way it shook out. How did you see the field? I I voted the same as you actually, and I I promise I didn't crib off your paper or, <laughs> or, or anything or hack into your email, but I, I too voted for for Herbert, but but certainly can can see why folks would would have preferred Malik Willis. And hey, Liberty beat Virginia Tech head head to head. So in part, I think maybe because Herb, that was the game where Herbert got hurt early. If, if, if memory serves and and didn't play a whole lot but Willis was was terrific in that game and Mike here's what strike what struck me and I made this remark or observation to, to Michael Phillips our sports editor with the three finalists being Willis Khalil Herbert and Reese Yadinsky from VMI other than being exceptional football players one other thing that those three young men have in common, transfers. Yeah. Because Udinsky's going to Maryland. Herbert came from Kansas. Willis to Liberty from Auburn. And it's a reflection of the times, right? Absolutely. And and I think we've talked about this, but you know, there's sort of this sense in, from some coaches and some programs that, especially with the one-time transfer policy, 
hey, it's better to take a guy who's already transferred because <laughs> he's now committed to you uh, for the rest of his college career uh, than somebody who can come and after you put a year or two in can bolt. So yeah, I, I think it's just the way we're going. And um, you know, it also speaks to, to the idea of when you transfer, you really have a, a better vision of the program you're going to, where you might fit in, maybe your own personal skill set. Um, maybe some of these guys go places where you know, maybe they weren't good enough. And, and conversely, uh, for players who are up for awards like this, I think um, maybe go places and then realize, hey, I, I can be a star. I can I can be more than, than what I'm looking at. Um, so, yeah, sign of the times. But congratulations to Malik Willis, a, a great season. And uh, definitely, if you subscribe to the, the voting approach of, you know, who meant the most to his team, uh, while, while certainly Herbert was very valuable for Tech. I mean, you take Malik Willis off Liberty, do they have anywhere near the, the fantastic season they had? I think um, the obvious answer would be no. Oh, no, no, no question. They're, they're, they're not bowling and they're not in the final top 25. Absolutely. Now let's get rolling today with, with some big off the field news. Uh, former Virginia Tech women's soccer player from the Richmond area. She filed a federal lawsuit against Hokies coach Chugger Adair. Uh, in that lawsuit, she alleges that he essentially ran her off the team because of her political views. In particular, her decision not to kneel with her teammates during the pregame reading of the ACC's Unity Pledge. Now, not the national anthem. The whole team stood for the national anthem, but um, they would kneel during the ACC's Unity Pledge. Her and another teammate uh, opted not to. Since we broke that story last week, another former player came forward and, and basically refuted those allegations and said that the player who filed the lawsuit, former James River star Kirsten Henning, that she lost her starting job and her playing time because of her performance, not her politics. David, it's a very current events, sign of the times kind of story, isn't it? Oh, it, it absolutely is, Mike. And it it's the intersection of politics and, and society and athletics and those who often preach, you know, stick, stick to sports and all that. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible for us. It's impossible for coaches and athletes. There's just no separating that there is no separation of church and state in 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 that particular case and in my view nor should there be i mean sports is part of the world and to try to make it insular is a mistake i believe yeah i tend to agree i mean and especially college sports um you know i, I know it's not supposed to necessarily be this but but college is the, the grounds for you know, revolutionary ideas and, and political thought and developing. I mean, so much of that in this country stems from college campuses, stems from, um, you know, the young people. I mean, think about the history of the American Revolution and uh, how tied that was into um, the people going to colleges. And, and um, so the idea of, of stifling thought or keeping those separate seems silly. As I look at the lawsuit, David, it's interesting because if her allegations are true, I think both both of us would have a problem, regardless of the politics, of a coach forcing a player to to kind of fall in line with everyone else's way of thinking. Uh, then conversely, you know, we had this other former player, Alice Hamill, come forward who said, hey, that, that's a little bit of revisionist history, that um, from her point of view, Chugger Adair never brought up politics. And, um, you know, it, it was interesting to me when I spoke with Alice Hamill that she looked at the specific quotes in the lawsuit. And every one of them, she said, oh, yeah, I remember Coach saying that. Mm -hmm. 
it had nothing to do with politics. Um, and I think we can say on the podcast, one of the quotes was bitching and moaning. Um, mm-hmm. And when I asked Alice Hamill specifically, she said, absolutely. Chugger said that to Kirsten Henning in the context of, hey, don't be bitching and moaning to your teammates when there's a breakdown, go make a play. Um, so that's the the thing that's and going to be really hard to, to, you know, for a court or however they, they work this out to figure out or to prove is, hey, was this driven by politics or was this driven by soccer and performance? And, and that's a, a very key and important distinction. How many times have all of us had conversations where things were said and misunderstood? And I think that c- clearly uh, the young woman had one understanding of what the coach was saying. And it seems that the coach who, would, you know, we haven't heard from Coach Adair. And if, if this doesn't go to court, perhaps we, we never will. But, you know, people interpret the meanings of conversations differently. And I think this is an example. And I don't know that we will ever resolve that. Yeah, and, and to your point about you know, being unable to separate sports and politics, political views go with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing, um, and it is part of how you interpret or receive what other people are saying. So, um, you know, it, it does color everything in our world for for better or worse, and oftentimes for worse. And I think this lawsuit, uh, regardless of how it shakes out, is, is sort of an example of of worse because I think you know both parties clearly were. <laughs> hurt now in this process. Coach Adair and and his, you know, uh, reputation by being named in this lawsuit, Kirsten Henning and and the way her career ended, um, you know, regardless of of how we kind of boil down the facts here, uh, nobody's really a winner in this situation, which is unfortunate. No, it it, it absolutely is. And I I think both parties, you know, in in their own way are, are, are hurting, you know, Kirsten feels like she was wronged. And Chugger Adair feels like he was wronged by by this lawsuit, and that's that's unfortunate. And there's, I again, I just don't know that there will ever be resolution here. Yeah, and uh, I do want to stress again because you, you look in uh, some of the Twitter mentions or replies to my stories or to um, Coach Adair's uh, Twitter feed, and um, this team did stand for the national anthem. All the players, all the coaches, uh, and again, this controversy stems from her decision not to kneel during the ACC's unity pledge, which is sort of a generic um, statement of, you know, I hope we can all get along. And, um, you know, for her reasons, she, she didn't want to, to be part of that kind of silent protest or, or silent statement, but um, is worth noting that the whole team was standing for the national anthem. Now, moving on to, to something a little more positive and light, uh, it's NFL draft week here. And I'd say it's an unusually exciting time uh, when you look at Virginia Tech's program in particular, because there are two guys, David, that you have to assume are both surefire first round picks. Christian Darasaw, the offensive tackle, and then Caleb Farley, even with some of his health and and surgical background, some of the issues there. Caleb Farley at corner uh, also is projected to go in the first round. David, is that the way you, you expect it to unfold? Mike, with the full confession that I am not a draft Nick by <laughs> by by any stretch, 
but everything you consume about the NFL draft, and it's almost unavoidable to not (laughs) consume information about the NFL draft if you're ever uh, on on the internet or or watching television. Yes, it, it, it certainly seems that way. And to have two first rounders for the Hokies. It happened in 2018, of course, with Mm -hmm. the Edmonds brothers, but then you have to go all the way back to 2004 and Kevin Jones and D'Angelo Hall going in the first round. So it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. And these are two, I I think they're just such fascinating prospects. If you haven't read Michael uh, Nizalik's series on Christian Darasaw and his uh, kind of road to the NFL draft, give that a read. This was not a highly touted. This was not a surefire five-star recruit coming out of high school. This is a guy who developed into a first-round draft pick in college. Mm. Mike, I think his other offer was Delaware State. <laughs> I mean, that's wild to, to go from from that to, to where he is now. I mean, it, people talk about him as the second or third best offensive lineman in the NFL draft. Um, what an amazing development. And Caleb Farley, if you remember Caleb Farley's first spring, the receiver. debate was wide receiver or corner, and yep. uh, tech, tech fans were salivating over the chance for him to play wide receiver. He had some real flashes at the position, um, and then Bud Foster ultimately won the, the arm wrestling match, I guess, and <laughs> got Caleb Farley on the defensive side. Now, he had the, the knee injury early. He had two back surgeries here at the end, so th- there is a medical red flag, if you will, for NFL people, but when you listen to the people who do follow the draft more closely than you and I, uh, they talk about his elite ball skills. And David, that kind of goes back to to his potential as a receiver. Well, it it does, Mike. And if you think about it, you know, obviously he he, he opted out this this past season. This is a young man who has not played a lot of football and certainly has not played a lot of corner. And if teams are already – considering him as a first rounder just consider the, the upside you know that the, the NBA is has all not always but for the last two decades has become a draft of potential not necessarily can you help us right away whereas the, the NFL there's more a, a sense of urgency but it seems like NFL teams believe that Farley can not only help them right away, but just has this considerable upside for improvement, which is the best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, the, the, the fear of him slipping would be, one, like you said, not a ton of demonstrated performance, and, and two, the medical issues. Does the upside outweigh that? And um, I mean, he's, that's why he, he's just such an intriguing prospect to me. But there are some other guys from, from the schools we cover. Um Charles Snowden, the linebacker at UVA, who you know we had as a guest on this podcast. He's just a, a fascinating kid, a fascinating guy to talk to. But don't sell him short. He was a tremendous impact football player. He also coming off an injury. David, what do you think the outlook for, for Snowden as a pro is? You gotta love his body type. You know, j- just the, the the size and the and the wingspan. He's long. He can play in space. He can rush the passer. You have to think at, at the NFL level, he's going to get bigger and stronger. And yes, like Farley, there are going to be injury concerns. But, you know, and, and we talked to Charles about this when we had him on on the pod, Mike. 
is that he has taken encouragement and motivation mm -hmm. from Bryce Hall's recovery from essentially the same injury. And then Hall went on to have an excellent rookie season and, and seems to be progressing nicely. And hopefully Charles can follow the same path. Yeah, and certainly he's somebody who's going to wow in interviews uh, as we, we experience. So none of the team coaches or executives who sit down with uh, Charles Snowden or Zoom with Charles Snowden, uh, they're, going to, they're going to be pretty impressed with, with what they see. David, some of the other candidates to be drafted, and I'm thinking about Divine Diablo, the safety at Virginia Tech, uh, Khalil Herbert, the running back we talked about in the opening uh, as a candidate for, for the Dudley Award, Tony Poljan, the, the tight end at UVA, a former quarterback at Central Michigan. These are all guys who have a chance uh, on the second or third day to hear their name called. Of that group, anybody jump out to you that you think, hey, that, that's a guy I'd want to use a pick on? Well, Diablo and Poljan fit the the prototype, right? Just in terms of size, again, very, very similar to, to, to Snowden with, with, with length and such, you know, running backs, you know, it just seems, you know, teams aren't, aren't inclined certainly not to draft them very high and with, with Herbert, maybe not at all, but man, he was fun to watch last year. And man, he has a burst. You know, I, I think he could play in the league. I, I honestly do. Now, whether that means he gets drafted or not, I don't know. But that won't preclude him from making a roster. Yeah, and the other thing that could help him making a roster, I mean, he, he's an explosive kick returner. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something certainly that NFL clubs uh, will value. Speaking of guys who... <laughs> you know, need, maybe need to get into a camp to, to impress. Uh, I think about Rayshard Ashby, the, the linebacker from Virginia Tech, former star at LC Bird. Um, I'm actually working on a story about him that will post uh, today or Wednesday. He's an intriguing prospect. I, it seems like a, maybe a long shot to be drafted, a guy that's going to come into a camp. Justin Fuente compared him uh, to former Tech linebacker Andrew Matuapuaka. Uh, you know, called him sort of the classic overachiever and Matua Puaka did get his shot with the Jacksonville Jaguars for a preseason. You know, Ashby's that solid tackler. He had over a hundred tackles two years in a row. Um, instinctive football player, yeah. as Justin Fuente said, but doesn't have the experience or, or the demonstrated performance and coverage that you'd need in the NFL. But it's always fun, I, I think, to watch a, a guy like that uh, maybe get his shot. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, we talked earlier about, about some of the guys having the, 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 the prototype NFL size. Ashby does not. And that, that works against him as well. But your use of the word instinctive, you took the word right, right out of my mouth. I mean, that's, that's what really stuck out as, as we watched Rayshard over the years. And I think that that's what Perhaps we'll land him in a camp as an as a undrafted free agent with a you know a chance to make the team. And you mentioned Khalil Herbert as a kick re returner. You know Ashby could be one of those guys who makes a name for himself on mm -hmm. special teams. Absolutely. Now you said you're not a draft Nick. That's not your uh, your thing. D do you watch or did you ever watch the draft? Were you ever anybody who? Um, blocked off your three days for entertainment or was it just for work purposes? Work purposes. Yeah, <laughs> so, not, it, it, it was not something that I could pay attention to for a, uh, for a long period of time. Now I, I covered 
the drafts in New York when Michael Vick was was the number one pick, which would have been 2001. So I was very much engaged that go around, but but otherwise, no. Yeah, for for me, it, it sort of feels like the recruiting stuff, which it's so important, and um, I don't mean to to downplay that at all. But at the same time, for me, it's like okay, come back in two years when when these guys are ready to contribute. And um, for me, it's sort of like I'll wait till till opening weekend in the NFL and and see who's where. Let me ask you the same question since it just happened uh, over the weekend and. People were talking about the Academy Awards, the Oscars. Uh, are you a guy who watched that show? I used to religiously because I I spent a great deal of time in movie theaters. Loved the movies. I can't remember the last movie I saw, Mike. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it saddens me, but I just have other things I have to do. And... So, no, I did not pay attention to the Oscars at all, although I did happen upon the video of Glenn Close doing <laughs> the butt. And it, it, that, that was awesome. Yeah, they, they should have interrupted the show right then to give her a special award uh, for that. You know, it's funny. I, I have not been to a movie theater in, in a long time, uh, obviously over a year since before the pandemic got started. But um, I actually saw a lot of the Oscar-nominated movies in the last two weeks. I made a concerted effort because so many of them were available free on these streaming sites. Um, and my wife and I actually watched Nomadland, which won for Best Picture, I think the night before the Academy Awards. Um, you know, we have to wait for the kids to go to bed and we have to have it a night where the kids go to bed early enough that they're asleep, but we're still awake <laughs> and can undertake a two hour movie. Um, but I did, I, I saw Nomadland. I, I really liked it. Uh, I saw Mank. I really liked it. Uh, the trial of the Chicago seven and the sound of metal. I thought all four of those were, were really good. It's, it's interesting to not be in a movie theater, but still get the chance to, to see some of these films. Uh, it's an interesting, it'll be something I remember, I think, about the pandemic, that I maybe saw more Oscar contenders uh, this year than I normally would. Yeah, and did Frances McDormand win for Nomadland? She did, and, and she was phenomenal in that movie. Yeah, she's, man, I, I go back with her to Fargo. and. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, her, her range and the role she's played and um, she'd be one of those people, you know, they always ask the question, Hey, you can, you can have a, a meal with three other people or you play around a golf with three other people. Uh, she'd be a fascinating one um, because I, I'm so curious what the real Francis McDormand is like. Cause we've seen so many iterations of her in these characters she plays, but, uh, but, but I digress. I thought that was interesting <laughs> since we were talking about watching the draft, getting back to football. Virginia Tech, they wrapped up their spring um, questions going in about the offensive line, about how they're going to handle the running back position, uh, about what kind of a quarterback Braxton Burmeister can be. Uh, will the defense make a big jump uh, in the second year under Justin Hamilton? We had the chance to go out there for a practice. We've talked to the players and coaches. Uh, the access has been much, much better uh, this spring than in recent years. David, what's your takeaway and what kind of did you leave – Virginia Tech spring thinking? Well, I, I think like most, if not all, coaching staffs, Virginia Tech's is quite optimistic, if only because they actually had a spring. And it's it's so ref refreshing to them. And, and to a man, Mike, you talk to any college football coach at virtually any level, and they will tell you that spring ball 
is their favorite time. I mean, the players probably after a while hate it, but the coaches love it because th there's not a scouting report hovering over their head or a game day or any of those logistics. This is pure football. This is classroom. This is teaching. And this is what they revel in. This is what they look forward to. This is team development. This is personnel development. And I, I sense that from Justin Fuente and, and his staff. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned a, a year ago, no spring. And I thought Justin Hamilton, that, that put him in a really, really tough situation. I, I expect that defense to be uh, vastly improved in year two under Justin Hamilton. Yes. If, if only because that is now year two, but also be because of experience and, you know, Barno, he was so good last year, again, with, with very little experience at the defensive end spot. And you, you've got to think that he's going to be <clears throat> such a force off the edge, and they've got Daly, the transfer from from Vanderbilt, to to bolster the safety spot. Yeah, I think they should they should be better, and they need to be better, and they know it. <laughs> they absolutely do. But that, that secondary, you're right. Um, I mean, what they went through last year with guys in and out, young kids, um, Keontae Jenkins, Dorian Strong, playing uh, probably ahead of schedule. I, I think this is the year that that pay some benefits for them. Yeah. Um, and took getting Waller back, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, they took their lumps there, but now those kids have played. And um, I think they have a chance to be not just better. I think they have a chance to be really good. Um, and in terms of attracting young guys and coaches, and you mentioned that this is all about teaching. Well, if, if April was all about, and March and April were all about teaching football, <laughs> June's going to be all about recruiting. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, speaking of, of Michael Nislik from, from the Roanoke paper, uh, he did a story for us and, and included the quote, an absurd June is what the coaching staffs are heading for. Campus visits, camps, hosting camps, uh, the return of recruiting. David, what is that rush going to be like? And that's the perfect word, rush. There will be no downtime and especially the weekends when you're dealing with the time when that, that's when most people want to visit. And that's when you have your camps. I mean, the head coach is going to be running from the camp field to his office to perhaps another place on, on campus for official visits or unofficials. And no, it's going to be quite, quite the, 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 the frantic pace for them and, and also for prospects. Yeah, that's it. And we always go back to the, the transfer trend, but um, think how many kids made choices. And we've talked about this, you know, sight unseen. Uh, think how many kids are going to be making choices a little more rapidly and rushed than, than would be the norm. Um, that all plays into, you know, hey, why, why kids might transfer, why they should be free to transfer. But it's going to be quite the challenge. You know, uh, fans were up in arms over Virginia Tech not playing their spring game. Coaches would always prefer a 15th practice anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that you do lose when you don't have a spring game, um, which they probably wouldn't have or would not have been able to do anyway this year, is hosting recruits. That's a right. big recruiting weekend. So these are all things that were missed because of COVID that these coaching staffs have to find a way now to, to scramble and, and get back. It's going to be interesting to see how they tackle it. It's also going to be interesting, David, to see what what sticks, what stays from the, the pandemic recruiting. You know, we've talked about recruits who were essentially wowed by campus tours done virtually. 
there were some things that you can do um, that I think may stick. We've heard this before from coaches talking about, you know, we just had to get him on campus and then he would see he'd fit. Well, maybe these kids that are a little reluctant, now they've learned some tricks here, these coaching staffs of how to portray their school, how to present their program to get kids onto campus. And and, um, how will they use those tools going forward? I think that's an interesting thing to watch. Not only it, 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 it's going to be paramount that they can continue that, Mike, because that is going to, to to be the trend moving forward. And and we're also talking, and, and, and not to overstate how hard coaches work, but it's a grind. And I think the the coaching fraternity profession is going to look at virtual recruiting and say, you know, there are times, not all the time that we don't have to be away from our families, that we can do this from a computer. And to, to me, that will be one of the blessings of COVID. Yeah. And, and not just the time and the coaches, which you're absolutely right, but what about budgets? What about the mm-hmm. money that's spent um, on traveling, on going places, on bringing? Not that you're going to eliminate that entirely, but I wonder if they haven't opened their eyes to, hey, we can get more bang for our buck. Uh, by doing some of this stuff virtually, by getting some of this stuff out of the way, if you will, um, and kind of narrow it down to the more serious, okay, who really needs to to come and take a look at campus? Um, and, and for the recruits, you know, we keep saying transfers, 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 it's going to continue. But if this opens up better communication between coaches and players, more than just a camp or a recruiting weekend, um, you know, maybe they find better connections and, and truer connections that lead them to doing a better job of picking a college in the first place. No, I, I, I agree. And, you know, prospects will always want to take their five or, or many of them will want to take their five allotted campus visits just because it's fun and it's free. <laughs> and who's, who's, who's turning down f- free trips, right? But yeah, and and, and talk about not only saving money, but just from an efficiency standpoint, you, you can you can do if if you're a coach, you can do three, four, five, half a dozen Zoom meetings with prospects. Whereas previously, you might only be able to do one because you're catching an airplane or you're in a car and, and such. So. I, I, I think folks will, will become more efficient with their time. Yeah, I think that efficiency, we've always heard the, the stereotype or the story of the coach sleeping in his office and um, missing family time. And it may just be as simple as, hey, sometimes you can join a staff meeting virtually. Um, and that would bring some freedom to these coaches' lives, which I think would be good. Um, we mentioned the money thing in, in another money area. When you look at Virginia Tech, they launched this uh, Reach for Excellence campaign. And David, it was sort of the, I don't know, painful reminder of how much money really is involved in college athletics, um, the financial goal they're trying to hit, the, the reasons behind it. David, take us through that campaign and, and, and why it's so important. Well, it's $400 million and it's it's urgent, Mike. And in in light of Virginia Tech, you know, they, they stood up there and, and, it, and it was important. It, it wasn't just... Justin Fuente and Whit Babcock. I mean, there was the, the president of the institution, Tim Sands, and they're involving campus development, fundraising types, such as Charlie Flieger, who in in his 
graduate school days used to sell student or uh, season tickets in the early 80s to Virginia Tech football when he was working in, in the athletic department as a grad assistant. But in, in, in light of Virginia Tech's announcement, I obtained the, the, the financials for all the public ACC institutions. And when it comes to, say, paying football assistant coaches of those eight schools, Virginia Tech ranks last. Hmm. And, it, you know, they use the phrasing, we want to go from challengers to champions. You can't do that ranking last. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it, 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 it's absolutely okay. It's, it's about not only a, a, attracting the best coaches, but then retaining them. And also this, the, the same when it comes to football re- re- recruiting staffs and, and such. And, you know, if you're going to recruit the transfer portal and also the high schools, you need personnel just to plow through all that information and then funnel it to the coaches. And, and you need an, a, a, an efficient and an effective way to do that. And I, I talked to Justin Fuente about this yesterday. He gave me 30 minutes o- over the phone and just just spoke about how urgent this, this need is and how appreciative he is of not only with Babcock and Brad Worthman and the athletic staff, but also the campus side with Tim Sands and, and Charlie Flieger for getting involved in this and impressing upon prospective donors how important this is. Yeah, and feel however you want about the cost of, of college athletics, the cost of college football. You know, personally, I find it ridiculous, but if you want to compete, mm-hmm. you've got to keep up, and, and that's just the reality. Now, speaking of competition, Tech's rival, UVA, it, it wraps up spring practice uh, here this weekend with a spring game or some form of a spring game. David, you did a story about a focus here to get back to that traditional run game, that traditional part uh, of that, and, and just how productive the offense has been, quite frankly, not <laughs> behind a traditional run game in the past few years. So what do we think Virginia's offense is going to look like this year? I think it might get it, – it has – especially if the run game, that that traditional run game becomes more effective. I think it could be really, really good. Now, the the, the one downer, as as all all the UVA faithful are are aware, and, you know, we mentioned last or on our last podcast, you know, who's the one player from from UVA you really want to see? And it was Lavelle Davis and the young man – gets an ACL, I believe, on the first day of a spring drills, just, you know, a, a receiver with, with such a high ceiling. And so, I mean, that obviously stinks for the the young man and but for the team. But even even without Davis, you know, this is the first time in the ACC era that Virginia has averaged more than 30 points a game in consecutive seasons. And I think they're going to do it for a, a third. You know, with, with with Brennan Armstrong back at quarterback, I think Thompson and Armstead give them so many gadget options, bringing them under center occasionally because they're they're so fast and athletic. And if if they can find a, a running back to get them some explosive plays, then I think they've got all the pieces. Yeah, that that seems to be what's missing. They, they've got these backs that we think can be. Uh, good can be effective, but do they have that that guy who pops and then you know like 
Khalil Herbert. Do they have a Khalil mm-hmm. Herbert? Now, those are hard to find, um, but we saw firsthand really just how uh, dramatically a player like that can can transform an offense. I think you're right, though. I think the pieces are there. And, you know, David, they're so experienced on that <laughs> offensive line. And right. That has not been the case at UVA um, for many years, uh, certainly under Bronco Mendenhall. They've been building towards this. That's got to go a long way towards Everything we're just talking about with the run game, the offense, the quarterback play, that front five looks to be really strong. Well, Mike, you did the math in a, in a story. How many, how many starts, career starts combined? Over a hundred. Over hundred. Um, I'm drawing a blank now on the number, but yeah, uh, yeah. And that level of experience, um, you know, Coach Two J, the offensive line coach, he said he's never never had that, and um, it's going to be a, a big difference, and, and it's. It's going to be a strength, I guess, is the point. It's going to be a strength where in the past it's been a weakness. You know, I wrote about in that article, Bryce Perkins' first year, so much of the offense was designed around running away from the weak play of the offensive line. Mm-hmm. How are you going to bootleg? How are you going to draw? How are you going to get away from this weakness? Um, whereas this year, I would imagine you sit in the offseason, you craft your offense, and you think, how am I going to run behind? How am I going to work behind the strength of this offensive line? Yep, and then then you add the the, the tight end piece, mm. and they they love that room, and 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 the in the addition of of the Oklahoma State transfer Jelani Woods. What is he? He's like six seven two two seventy two seventy five. Massive player, but who has the ability to to run routes to catch mm-hmm. pass. Like it's not he's not just some big uh, additional offensive lineman blocking at the tight end spot. Um, he had a number of touchdown catches in his time with the Cowboys, and you know he'll replace Tony Poljan in that role. Where you know Tony Poljan, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a high percentage of his catches <laughs> were touchdowns. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they targeted him in the end zone where he could use that big body, um, working in tight spaces, and I. I think Johnny Woods has a chance to be that kind of a weapon. Yeah, and and you mentioned Mike, a high percentage of catches ending up in touchdowns. No one was better at that than Rayshon Henry, the transfer from from St. Francis. I believe four of his seven catches last year resulted in touchdowns, and one guy called back against Miami, but he averaged right. almost thirty yards a catch. And Bronco Mendenhall has mentioned uh, on his spring Zooms how much Henry has progressed. So I would expect big things from him this season. Yeah, he was a guy that kind of emerged late. And if that continues, could be a huge weapon for Virginia. So that's Virginia spring. We talked about tech spring. And that brings us to this week's edition of Who You Got. Thanks, Mike. I know it's only uh, April, but in a meeting between Virginia and Virginia Tech football, here's the question, who you got? Let's start with David. I'll take UVA because the Cavaliers will be at home this season in in that game. I think, again, it would be very evenly matched, much like the game two years ago in, in Charlottesville. But I, I because of the offensive line and – you know, Brennan Armstrong and, and, and such, I, I like the Cavaliers. All right. David's got the who's at home. Mike, who you got? Now, I hate to agree because it's not as exciting for listeners, but I, I do agree. Um, I, I think it would be real close. I, I think they're uh, pretty evenly matched. To me, it does come down to the, to the trenches. And I, I think Virginia has an offensive line that can control a rivalry game. And Virginia Tech, I just don't know that that's the case. I think they've got some players <laughs> who, who are that good, but I don't know that they have five. I don't know that they have that cohesion. And, and you know, also, 
that game would be late in the year. Who knows where you're at in your depth. But the question of if they had to play right now, I think Virginia Tech has more development to do between now and its first ball game uh, than UVA. Certainly, they both have a lot of work to do. But I, I would take Virginia in a close one uh, right now. And speaking of, of close ones, closer than people expected, David, you were at the, the JMU VMI FCS playoff game. I think, at least for me as an outsider, I looked at it and thought, okay, that's first round. JMU's just going to roll by four or five touchdowns. You know, back in some of their national title runs, I remember uh, Sam Houston State coming to Bridgeforce Stadium and just getting uh, absolutely obliterated by the Dukes. That was not the case. This was a contest, and the key that's uh, they played well enough to make it that way. What, what did you see? Exactly that, Mike. Closer than expected, and really closer than I expected after a first half that ended with JMU ahead 21 to three. And you're thinking, okay, this game is going to get really sideways in the second half, if only because JMU is deeper and faster. And oh, by the way, JMU's first team defense had not allowed a second half touchdown all season. And what did VMI do? VMI scored three second-half touchdowns against JMU's front-line defense, and they were not flukes. They were drives of 70, 75, and 75 yards. Really impressive performance by VMI. You know, it's funny. So my, my wife is, as I've mentioned, is a JMU graduate, as, as are you. Uh, so we tuned in to watch the game. Uh, we had you and Wayne Epps. We had your tweets up so we could follow along. And uh, you know, JMU breaks that 99-yard touchdown run. Right. And it's like, okay, maybe we should find something else to watch this afternoon. And uh, really, think about that onside kick by VMI that, that was called off for a penalty. Uh, if that call goes a different way, there's even more drama in this game. Could Absolutely could have been. And by the way, and as, as many people in the press box will tell you, I called it. I'm just sitting there saying they're going to onside kick right here. And JMU better be ready for it. And when it happened, everybody's like, oh. <laughs> you were halfway there because you called it right, but JMU wasn't ready. You should have uh, called upstairs to the coaches above you if that's still the setup in the press box. And uh, Although I guess now they're on the same level. But, uh, they are. So you got to see JMU. You got to see VMI put up a, a tremendous fight. Does this JMU team look like it's it's got the parts to, to win a national title? You know, Mike, I don't follow FCS – football re- religiously but by any stretch i th- but just i i've i've watched this team now in person three times this spring there is undeniably some some talent out there and they they have an embarrassment of riches at, at running back mm-hmm. and they are athletic on defense but they have not played their best yet and kurt signetti will will tell you as much but they're they're trending that way. If they hit their stride, they they absolutely could make it happen. You know, they get North Dakota this Sunday in in the quarterfinals again in Harrisonburg, where the Dukes have won ten consecutive playoff games. That's pretty good. And the interesting thing about North Dakota is, you know, it lost to North Dakota State on March twentieth, and then did not play again. Until the first round of the playoffs last week. I mean, welcome to COVID, right? 
What what an odd year when you think about um, this statement. If you're the JMU football team uh, in FCS powerhouse, you're hoping that you're playing your best football in late April. Right. That is not normally what coaches are going for, but uh, like so many things we've already talked about on this pod, a sign of the times. So thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again in two weeks. Two weeks.